Hey, it's great to be with you this morning. I love this church. I love your pastors. I love your pastoral staff. I love what God is just doing here in some exciting ways. I'm always very encouraged, and uh, you, you are a part of a wonderful church. Uh, God is doing some great things here, so I love being with you. And if you're watching this morning by video, it's great to be with you. Uh, Pastor Christian will be, will be back next week for part five of this series, and uh, so I know that you can look forward to that. But I'd love to pray before we jump in there, all right? Let's pray together. Father, I realize that there are some who are here today, and it's hard for them to be here. They're struggling with a lot of different things in life. Some people are here convinced that you're mad at them. Some people are here, and they're mad at you. There's a lot of confusion here today. We're praying by your Holy Spirit that we would have open eyes and ears to hear and to see and to recognize truth. Father, we're praying that there would be hope, meaning, purpose for life itself that would be found here today only because of Jesus. So be glorified in this time, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The world does not function as God intended it to function. Husbands and wives were not created to be unfaithful to each other. Young children were not meant to bully each other. We weren't supposed to grow up with tension towards our parents. Young mothers were not meant to hear a a diagnosis at stage four breast cancer. Young men were not meant to be struck by lightning and killed suddenly. We were not meant to make decisions based upon race, to reject people based upon race. Our war, this world was not meant to be marked by war. It's not the way it was meant to be. You see, the only way the world makes sense is in view of eternity. The only way that we can make sense of everything that we see in this world around us is by understanding that there is indeed life after death. But you see, for the majority of us, so much about death has changed, just even over these past decades, even more and more so. Because for centuries, for centuries, death happened at home, surrounded by family. And it's only recently that death usually now happens in a hospital, surrounded by lots of medical personnel, sometimes family. We've changed the way that we talk about death. We don't say, well, she died. We say, well, she, she passed. We have talked about it in a very different way. You see, if you really want to understand what you think about life, if you really want to understand what you think about God, you've got to be able to ask those questions. What do you think happens after you die? What do you think about the afterlife? Do you believe that there's an afterlife? Do you believe that there's a heaven? Do you believe that there's a hell? And once we really start to talk about this, we can learn so much about what we think about it. It's interesting because our view of heaven has been informed by a lot of different things, right? I mean, like historically, it's been informed by Handel and by Beethoven and by Bach and by Raphael and by Michelangelo and by Jacob Marley. And more recently, it's informed by things like Bruce Almighty and Colton Burpo. Colton Burpo, you know who that is? The four-year-old boy that had the dream and uh, said that he saw all of these things in heaven and they wrote the book. He didn't write the book. His dad wrote the book. Heaven is for real. And it's amazing. The book sold over 5 million copies. And it was an amazing story. And I've met his dad. We've spoken. It's an amazing story. Here's what troubled me, though, about that whole thing. 
People read that book and said, you know, I love the fact this absolutely proves that heaven is for real. This proves so many of those things. And I would push back and I said, absolutely not. It confirms it maybe, but it doesn't prove it. I knew heaven was for real before I read the book because it's in the word of God. God promised us that heaven is for real. It's all throughout the scriptures. So I hope that you don't need to have a story like this to prove to you that it's actually true. We knew it was true long, long before because God's made it so very clear in his word. It's interesting, as a pastor, I'm asked all the time questions. People say, oh, you're a pastor. I've had all of these questions my whole life I want to just talk to somebody about. And almost always those questions are about heaven. People have a lot of questions about the afterlife. So I've heard, you know, I've heard many, many questions. Well, I know my parents in heaven. Well, if your parents are in heaven, I think that you will know your parents. I think that they'll be wonderful. What, what do we do in heaven? That's always a big thing. What, what do we do? Do we just kind of sit around and do we have wings and do we have harps? And heaven seems kind of boring to me. And I don't really know if I want to go to heaven if it's going to be that boring. In heaven, you're going to work. You're going to have a job. It's going to be a functioning culture. You're going to go to your job. You're going to work. Work came before the fall. Work was a part of a perfect world. There was work. And you say, that doesn't sound like heaven to me. Listen, there's no nasty bosses. There's no mean coworker. There's no 20-minute lunches. Those things are not in heaven. But work will be fulfilling. You'll be able to create. You'll be able to make things. But we, we will have jobs in heaven. We will work in heaven. And I believe that oftentimes that God will take jobs that you have here on this earth and he will use those jobs, continue to use those jobs in heaven. Now, here's the bad news. If you're a lawyer, if you're a doctor, if you're a nurse, if you're involved in insurance, those jobs aren't gonna be there in heaven. Those jobs are gone. I'm not saying doctors and lawyers are gone. I'm saying those jobs are gone. If you're a teacher, if you're a worship leader, that's job security because I think that you'll be able to do those things also in heaven. But there's going to be work, and it's going to be fulfilling. You're going to care for things. You're going to serve others. It'll be completely different. Death, decay, suffering will be gone. There's no joblessness like there is in Haiti. There's no orphans like there are in Sudan. There's no conflict like there is in the Middle East. Heaven will be without those things. People say, well, okay, do we get a new body in heaven? Yes, absolutely. You'll have a full body makeover. And lots of you are saying amen to that. You know, it's amazing, but the only imperfection in a body in heaven is Jesus Christ. You understand that? Because he will still have the scars in his hands and his feet. Those will be the only scars in heaven. Everything else will be gone. People ask me all the time, well, This will sound small-minded, but will my pet be in heaven? It depends. Dogs go to heaven, cats go to hell. It's very simple. (laughs) Very simple. My my wife doesn't like it when I say that because she says, you know, Jimmy, I know you're joking when you say that, but you have to realize that you've got some pastoral authority, and you've been at this for long enough. People really respect what you say, and if you say that, people are going to take that, and some people might take that. What if there's like some children in the audience? I mean, that could be terrible. So... Knowing that I have pastoral authority and knowing that I need to be a bit more serious, dogs go to heaven, cats go to hell. All right. 
Do we eat in heaven? Of course we eat in heaven. There's the marriage supper of the Lamb. Of course we're going to eat in heaven. Are there sports in heaven? Yes. And the Royals win the World Series every year, and Cardinal fans are happy for us. It's a beautiful thing. It's interesting that God is not going to allow me to preach a message that he doesn't take me through something very, very recently to think a lot more about this. Thomas Stanley, dear friend, 33 years old, wife, three young children, running an ultra marathon, steps away from the finish line, struck by lightning and killed. And I got the message and I thought, it has to be a mistake. And there's just, Thomas, no. Why, Lord? And you know something? Nothing makes sense unless you view it in life from the standpoint of eternity. We can't make sense of the pain of this life unless you look at eternity. It's the only thing that helps us understand the pain and the suffering of this life. So I want to look at some things very, very quickly. I want to look at the problem of the afterlife. I want to look at the promise of the afterlife. And then I want to look at the purpose of the afterlife. And I want to look at this from Mark 12. And I'm going to start off in verse number 18. This is, this is Passover week, actually, in Jerusalem. And it's Tuesday, and it's a day where Jesus is at the temple, and group after group come, and they ask him hard questions because they're trying to stump him. And they ask him about those who he respects. They ask him about politics. Now they're going to ask him about theology, and they're trying to do everything that they can to stump him. And so a group comes, and they try this. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no erection, came to him with a question, teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. So it was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, they're thinking, if there is a resurrection, which we don't believe there is, but at the resurrection, Whose wife will she be since the, married, since the ones were all married to her? See, these are Sadducees. They don't believe in the resurrection. And as a child, I was taught they're sad, you see. They don't believe in the resurrection. This is the only time that they're mentioned in Scripture. It's interesting. Mark tells us this story, and he said the Sadducees. Luke tells us the exact same story, and he says spies came to Jesus. They were there to trip him up. They were there as spies. They're trying to stump him. But the Sadducees believed in the writings of Moses. They held on to what, what you know, Moses said, but they did not believe in a resurrection. They believed that this life was all there is. And so because this life is all there is, they believed you should put every effort you can into what people see, into appearances, and trying to live the most moral, most godly life you possibly can, because after this life, death is extinction. It was a very shallow view. It was all about appearances. It was absolutely everything for the here and now. And once again, your view of the afterlife shapes and forms your everyday life. Your view of the future absolutely defines the way that you live your life in the present. Because if you don't believe in the future, if you're like those people, then it's true. Eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. If you don't believe that there is an afterlife, then put everything you can into this life because this is it. 
there, there was an ad on TV for years. It was an ad for a beer, and there are a bunch of guys around a campfire, and they've been out that day fishing, and they caught a lot of fish, and that night they're you know, around this campfire, and they're drinking their beers, and one guy says, you know, life doesn't get any better than this. I don't know if you remember that commercial. Here's the truth. If they don't follow Jesus Christ, what they said is absolutely theologically true. Because if you don't know Jesus, this life, this is as good as it gets. Enjoy this life, because this is it. If you follow after Jesus Christ, this life is as bad as it gets. Right, you understand that? This is as bad as it gets. Because we have eternity yet to come. So if we believe in eternity or not, it shapes absolutely the way that we live our lives right here. What do you think will happen after you die? You see, if you really want to really understand Jesus and his message, you have to understand this is what Jesus believes happens after you die. But you have to ask yourselves, what, what do I believe about that? It's interesting. About, about 85% of folks believe in heaven. They believe it's out there. 64% believe that they will go to heaven. It seems really high. 71% believe in hell. And less than one half of 1% believe that they will go to hell. So the Sadducees want to trick up Jesus. They want to you know, stump him. They don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in the afterlife. So they come up with this crazy story. And it feels like a musical, right? It feels like seven brides for seven brothers. It's like, okay, here's this story about these seven brothers and they all go through life and just one after another they die, which means that this woman is like a black widow because her husbands keep dying, right? And finally she dies and they say, okay, there's, there's no resurrection. But if there was a resurrection, if there was a resurrection, that would mean that in heaven she would have seven husbands, which in reality would be hell, right? But anyway... And you know, she, she would have seven husbands. So that, that can't be right. That can't be right. So what's going on with that story? It's a classic straw man. You misrepresent the opposition's argument, and then you can easily tear it down. It's a straw man because Jesus is going to make clear. So then he gives us the promise of the afterlife. And he shows them why what they have said contains such gla- just glaring errors. He says this. Are you not in error? And I love this because one, you don't know the scriptures or you don't know the power of God. And oftentimes that's it right there, isn't it? Hey, listen, you need to know the scriptures and you need to know the power of God because when the dead rise, keep in mind that they did not believe that there was a resurrection, but Jesus makes it very clear. When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Now, a lot of people don't like that verse. They're like, wait a second. Does that mean I'm not gonna be married in heaven? Why, why is there not marriage in heaven? Because there's no need for procreation because there's no death. There's no death in heaven. No need for more children. No death at all. And Jesus says that they will be like the angels in heaven. Now, what, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that we will be angels. It means that we will be like angels and that the angels do not marry either. Now, keep in mind, This group believed in the writings of Moses, and so Jesus goes right there. Now, about the dead rising. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. 
He wasn't the God. He, you know, this is not in the past. He is the God. He is the living act of God of these people. There is a resurrection. I love that you are badly mistaken. In the Greek, it actually says, you foolish pinheads, but that's in the Greek. So, see, these are Old Testament authorities, but they have no idea what the Bible actually says. They're clueless. They had man-made theology, and they said, don't confuse us with the facts. Our minds are made up. And they're saying this to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is, in fact, the resurrection. You see, the stories about Jesus and the resurrection at this time were widely known. There's a widow at Nain, and her son has died, and Jesus stops a funeral procession and raises her up from the grave. Mark chapter 5, Jairus' daughter has died, and Jesus raises her up. Lazarus has died, and Jesus resurrects him from the grave. They don't believe in the resurrection, but the life of Jesus is one of resurrection. Jesus is all about the resurrection. He says this, I am the resurrection. I am the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Have you really thought through the implications of your view about the afterlife and how that impacts the way that you live here, the way that you think about different aspects of your life? Let's look at the purpose of the afterlife. Because you need to understand that if you're a Christian, if you follow Jesus, what defines you is Christ's resurrection. What defines you is the fact that Jesus Christ went to the cross, suffered and died, and has been resurrected. Because there's no need to be here if the resurrection is not true. If the resurrection isn't true, we should be elsewhere today. Because it all hinges upon the resurrection. But the way that you think about the resurrection and then ultimately the afterlife, it changes everything. It changes the way that you think about relationships. Bill is a man who has dated a lot of women. And he gets right to the point of engagement over and over again, and he just can't pull the trigger because he says, I'm just not convinced this person is going to make me happy. And my goal in life is to really be happy, and I don't think this person can do it for me. You know what? Bill will experience a life of disappointment because no one was meant to bear the burden of making another person happy. He will be disappointed his entire life because what he is longing for is not a horizontal relationship, but a vertical relationship because there's only one person in life who can actually fill that void, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if he goes through life thinking, hey, listen, you've got to make me happy. I want to find the right person who's going to really make me happy. It will end in frustration every single time. The other person is cooked because they cannot bear the burden of godhood. They cannot bear the burden of the happiness of the other person. Cannot happen. It changes the way that you think about relationships. Because my eyes are upon the Lord, and I know that ultimately, these things, these voids in my life can only be filled by Jesus Christ. And not by my spouse, not by that person that I'm pursuing. It changes the way that we parent our children. If you parent in a way that you say, you know what, uh, you know, just watching my little girls on the ballet floor or watching them at just like a volleyball match, it just kind of justifies my existence on earth. It makes me understand why I'm here. You know what, when I watch my girls, if that's the way you talk about your girls, you're going to destroy them because they were never meant to bear that weight. They were never meant to bear the weight of justifying your existence because of what they do. No person was meant to bear that. 
That's only on the shoulders of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one that will not disappoint. It changes the way that we think about suffering. If you haven't been here the past three weeks, Pastor Christian has preached three incredibly powerful, strong messages about suffering. And if you've not heard them, you need to listen to them. If you were here, you need to hear them again. Because they remind us over and over of what is the purpose and the point of suffering. As he reminded us, so often we sell God short by saying, Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected. Jesus Christ suffered and died on a cross and was resurrected. Why is that so important? Because in his eternal suffering, he relieves us of our eternal suffering, not our temporary suffering. But eternally, we will not suffer because of what Jesus Christ accomplished upon the cross. But so often, I think that we live in a culture and we live in a world where we want to be freed from suffering. We do everything we can to avoid suffering. It's interesting, I have a good friend, and he, and, and about a year and a half ago, he moved. And he goes to this place, and he's in this place, so he wants to f- find the best church. So they start to go around, and they go to lots of different churches. But there are kind of two churches that they go to, uh, you know, lots of times. And after they had been there lots of times, his wife, who is very young, find out, she, she learns she has stage four breast cancer. It's just devastating. And there's these two, two, you know, really good churches, Church A and Church B, and they want to help him, and they want to just serve he and his wife, and so they begin to bring meals, and they come over, and they consistently pray for her. And as he shared the story with me just last month, he said it was so interesting because it was such a contrast in the way that these two groups prayed. Because Church A, this group would come over, and they would pray for my wife, and they would say, Lord, We pray that she would be healed. Lord, we claim your promise of healing. We pray that she would be freed from her suffering. Father, we pray that she would rise up and we pray that this would be overcome, that she would not have cancer, that these things would be gone. We claim these things. We claim your promise. We trust these things in Jesus' name. He said, church B came over and their prayers were very different. Their prayers were, Lord, we're gonna ask for you to heal her, but here's our main prayer. Be with her in her suffering. Remind her that you are there with her in the midst of her suffering. Remind her of your eternal promises that you are the shepherd that will never leave her. And in the midst of her suffering, remind her that you are there and teach her. Teach her everything that you have for her in the midst of the suffering. And after a year of going through this, they chose church B because they said it was so much more real. You see, Jesus never promised to take us around the valley of the shadow of death. He promised to take us through the valley of the shadow of death. My encouragement to you this morning is there are a lot of people that become very angry with God because they say, hey, Lord, here are some promises that you made to me. And I want to claim these things. And if they don't happen, I want to be angry. But I, have, I, I find in Every case, in every case, what they're angry with about God, God never promised them. Stop being angry with God for not fulfilling promises that he never made to you. We hold God in contempt for so many promises that he never made to us. The one promise I hear from people, which is not a promise from God, but the one thing I hear quoted over and over again that drives me crazy, especially with young pastors and church planters and missionaries, 
God's work done in God's way by God's people will never lack God's resources. That's a lie from the pit of hell. That's a lie. You know why it's a lie? God never promised us that. And when these things don't go well and we don't have God's resources, then we just heap guilt and shame upon ourselves because we think, I must be doing something wrong. This must not be God's plan. I must not be God's person. I thought I was, but there's got to be something wrong with me. And then it becomes all about us and we cheapen the cross of Jesus Christ. God never promised us nowhere that, hey, if you do you know, God's work in God's way, that it's not going to lack God's resources. I work with a lot of pastors all over the world. There's pastors in Haiti. There's pastors in Malawi. I could go on and on who are God's people, and they are doing God's work in God's way. And you know what? They lack God's resources. They're struggling. They're poor. They need more and more resources. And when we have a myth like this, it heaps massive amount of guilt upon people. Listen, we can pray for God's gifts, but praying for God's gifts and claiming God's promises are two very, very different things. God never promised you a spouse. God God never promised you a good husband. He didn't. God never promised you that you would have children. God never promised you that you would have healthy children. God never promised you that you would not have cancer. God never says that you would not be involved in a car accident. He never promised those things to you. You know what he did promise? That he would be with us forever. That he would eternally be our shepherd. That he would eternally be our God. That's what God promised us. And we need to hold on to those promises. We need to believe those promises. God blessed me with five very healthy children. What an amazing gift. Then my oldest son and his wife, they begin to have children and they have little Ivy and you know she's now five years old, incredibly healthy. And then they have little Beatrice, B as we call her, three years old. B has severe special needs, severe. She, she, she will never speak. Uh, the odds are pretty high that she'll spend her life in a wheelchair. She can smile times we sense that we hear her laugh, but it's, it's hard. My wife and I prayed all throughout my son's wife's pregnancy that they would have a healthy child. Did God break his promise to us? No. He never promised us that. Some of you here are so angry with God. My mother suffered when she died. I'm so angry with God. He never promised that she wouldn't. He promised that he would be there for her forever. He promised that one day suffering would be alleviated forever. He promised that he would never leave us, that he would never forsake us. But he never said that there would not be painful, hard suffering that takes place in this life. God has made us so many promises in his word. As a matter of fact, he made us 7,000 464 promises. Claim those. Those are promises from God. But don't hold him in contempt for things that he never promised you. Hold on to those things that he have that, that, that he has promised. He's going to always be there. We will live a beautiful life forever with him. 
We will know a life void of the ultimate suffering because Jesus suffered and died and took all of that suffering. There will still be temporary suffering in this life, but the ultimate suffering has been swallowed up by the Lord Jesus Christ. He he promises us that he will deliver us from that final wrath. Jesus never promised you a greater story. He promised you a greater Christ. Despite what you can find in the Christian books on Amazon and the bestsellers, Jesus never promised you your best life now. He didn't. He promised you the best Savior and Redeemer now and forever. See, so often we make it all about us. And when we do, we cheapen the cross and we heap guilt and shame upon people. Because they think, well, I'm not living my best life now, so it must be me from the pit of hell. It's a lie. Don't believe it. Jesus never promised you greater resources. He promised you greater grace. That's what he promised. He never promised you that there would be no suffering. He promised that in the midst of suffering, he would be the ultimate shepherd. He tells us over and over again, actually, in Romans 8, he promises us everything in Jesus. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. How you view eternity will shape everything about the way that you live your life on this earth. I love what John Newton said. He was asked, okay, so what do you think is going to surprise you about heaven? He goes, oh gosh, I think there's going to be three major surprises in heaven, three really big ones. First of all, I think there's going to be some people there that I really didn't expect to be there. I think that's going to surprise me. Number two, I think there's not going to be some people there that I actually did expect to be there. And three, the biggest surprise by far is that I will be there. That'll be the greatest. That's a gift of incredible grace. But as we follow Jesus, that is also his promise. We live in very uncertain times. You can be certain about heaven. You can be certain about heaven. As a pastor, I'm also asked, okay, how long is eternity? That kind of feels like a trick question that would come from a six-year-old, right? How long is eternity? The Puritans tried to answer that question. They tried to just give people a tangible sense because you really can't answer that question. The closest we can come is an illustration, but the illustration will always fall short. But they said it's like this. Imagine a big clock, and this clock ticks forth one day. 24 hours. So just think of this clock that is this one-day clock. Then think of the world buried in one mile of sand. The entire world that we know buried, one mile. Every thousand years, God sends a single solitary bird down to take one grain of sand off of the face of the earth. Every thousand years, one grain of sand. When the very last grain of sand is plucked off the face of the earth, the first second of heaven will have just started to tick by. It's a long time. How you think about eternity changes everything with the way that you live your life here. Live it before the King of kings and Lord of lords, knowing that every amount of ultimate suffering was swallowed by Jesus Christ as he suffered and died upon a cross and was confirmed as powerfully as it could be by the resurrection. There is a resurrection from the dead. 
And as we follow Jesus, you and I will be a part of that ultimate resurrection and bring us to Jesus, a place with no tears, no pain, no suffering, only hope, only confidence, only Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask this morning that we would be able to hold on a bit more tightly uh, to your promises and that those false promises that we have held you to that have created anger, that we would let those things go. Father, I know that in a crowd this size, there's going to be some. that They have been angry with you for a long time, holding you in contempt for promises that you never made. May that be released today. May they understand you want the best for us. You are completely for us. Father, may we not live our lives like the Sadducees, that it was all about appearances, it was all about this life. May we understand that there is a life yet to come, and that is the ultimate life. So, Father, deepen our faith and our trust in what is yet to come so that we can live differently here day to day for your glory and your honor so that the name of Jesus Christ would be made more famous in Lee Summit in Kansas City and around the world for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.
tree, all the things unseen, and it's reckoning, oh. Joy come every bow. I know that's where 